Welcome to the We Go There podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... Exactly. We go there. Because no topic should be too taboo, especially when it comes to women's health. We ask the questions you may be too afraid to ask and interview the experts to get the answers you need. So we're doing this completely unfiltered. 100%. Okay, let's go there. So welcome to the We Go There podcast, Dr. Michael Klein. We are over the moon to have you joining us today. This is going to be such a powerful conversation. And honestly, I'm I'm actually kind of nervous and excited at the same time. I've got your book right here, and I've been reading it called Dissident Doctor. And you are a beacon of light in the medical field, um, in obstetrics, in, you know, as family medicine, you're a pioneer. And I don't want to just read your bio here. I just, I want to get you talking and me talking less because you have so much to say. Um, and really, I think what people need to know for context is that, you know, you really are, have been the, the number one person in the world who has finally been able to push evidence forwards, showing that episiotomies are not in good practice. And you were, I think, single-handedly one of the, the people who were the one person who basically was like, you know, we got to stop doing this. It's not helping women. In fact, it's hurting them. So yeah, thank you for being here. You're a legend. I'm obviously a super fan. Lexi's just shaking her head because she knows how excited I've been to have this episode. <laughs> Nikki yesterday was sending me like all of these articles and clips like, read this. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. <laughs> like you literally have met your number one fan. <laughs> so thank you for all that you do. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, so I'm going to read the title of your book. It's called Dissident Doctor, Catching Babies and Challenging the Medical Status Quo. And that's, I mean, that's exactly what you've done in your career. So can you just give us a little bit of background of, of who you are and how you came to be? Um, obviously people need to read your memoir, but you know, in a nutshell. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Well, I went to Stanford Medical School, uh, and uh, I never saw a family doctor all the time that I was there, so you could hardly become one. So I became a pediatrician and, in fact, uh, ran newborn intensive care units for uh, a number of years and discovered family medicine uh, rather late in life. I'm almost 84, and uh, I uh, realized that that was what I was meant to do. But I had been exposed to birth through my role as a neonatologist. So I used to take care of very small premature infants. But as a medical student, uh, I took a year and a half leave from Stanford and went to Ethiopia. And in Ethiopia, I uh, was working as the only medical student in a children's hospital. And people took very good care of me. And I got to do many things that you wouldn't normally get to do as a medical student. They actually uh, were so desperate, they used me as a fully trained physician. And uh, I took duty like everybody else. And when things got quiet at the uh, latter part of the day, as they tended to do, I would wander through a short tunnel into the adjacent uh, maternity hospital. And uh, there were midwives catching babies there. And they were very generous, and they let me uh, uh, 
catch babies under their supervision. And uh, so by the time I returned to Stanford, one of the very few things I needed to do to graduate was to do obstetrics and gynecology. And by that time, I had already delivered about 200 babies under midwifery care. And so I was uh, starting my first uh, rotation in obstetrics and gynecology, and I was doing what medical students do. And I, uh, I uh, uh, felt a heavy hand on my shoulder. And it was the professor and chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Stanford who said, Mr. Klein, come into my office. And so I did just that. I didn't know what my crime was. And he said to me, and these are his exact words that burned into my memory. He said, on my service, everybody will get an episiotomy. And if she doesn't get one before the birth, she'll get one after. Now, that's a very sick joke, of course, if it was a joke. Uh, I presume it was a joke. But the next thing he said was, if you want to practice primitive medicine, you will have to go to the county hospital. And he actually exiled me to the county hospital, which in the United States still exists as a hospital for poor people. And I had a wonderful experience. And I uh, was not only able to attend births and had a great time doing it my way without a episiotomy, of course, uh, as the midwives had taught me. But then I was able to care for the babies after I delivered them. And this was in the 1960s, before family medicine was a recognized specialty. And of course, I was doing family medicine without realizing that I was doing it because I didn't even have a name for it. So that was the beginning of how I was exposed to both, uh, you know, the lack of evidence around, around episiotomy and, and many other aspects of childbirth. So uh, what happened is that uh, when I uh, returned to McGill uh, in the mid-70s, uh, it was before midwifery was legalized. And so uh, in Quebec and then earlier in Ontario and, uh, and later in British Columbia, midwifery became regulated. And what happened there was that I would, I would support midwives pre-regulation because if they were going to have a hospital birth, the hospitals required a physician to be there. So I continued to work with midwives in the pre-regulation period and subsequently post-regulation. So uh, when it came to the issue of studying episiotomy, I decided that it really had to be properly studied because the studies that were out there were in in. Western countries in North America, principally, there were no studies at all about episiotomy. What had been written about episiotomy in the textbooks of the day, the, the principal textbooks of the day, was wrong, and it hadn't been changed since 1920. And uh, without going, you know, it, it claimed all kinds of benefits for episiotomy, among them that prevented tears, it was better for the baby, it healed better, blah, blah, blah. And I knew that that wasn't true, but there had never been a North American study. There had been studies in Britain and other places run by midwives. And it was very easy for North American obstetricians and doctors to dismiss these studies because they were not taking place with physicians. I mean, who cared what midwives were doing anyhow, right? <laughs> and so the, uh, I decided it had to be a North American study. It had to be with doctors, 
And it had to have another element in it as well, which people often forget. And that is not only to study episiotomy, which as most of your listeners will know, is a deliberate cut at the base of the vagina to supposedly widen the birth canal and allow an easy delivery of the baby. And I also uh, measured the actual functioning of the pelvic floor with a, a, a process called electromyographic perineometry, which is actually Kegelometry. And those of you who know what a Kegel is, know oh, they what I'm know. talking about. They know. <laughs> you know. Right. So what, what the study showed in a nutshell, and it was the first time that this had been shown, was that episiotomy caused the very trauma that it was supposed to prevent. And that uh, was unambiguous. For example, uh, in more than a thousand women in the study, there were uh, around 54 who had severe tears. Every one of those 54, except one, took place in the presence of episiotomy. Now that's as causal as you will ever get. Mm-hmm. Meaning that the, there was only one woman <clears throat> who had uh, a severe tear uh, without an episiotomy. Wow. And yet, you know, why was, how did this practice stick around for so long? I mean, and why did you have so much of a fight to prove that this was, you know, not good medicine? Well, everything is about uh, power. And uh, so the, the author of William's textbook of obstetrics was Williams. And that textbook still exists, excuse me. But it was Williams himself who founded the Chicago Lying In Hospital who promoted this idea. But it wasn't just a medical idea, it was a political idea. So in his famous uh, address to the Chicago uh, Association of Gynecologists, not obstetrics and gynecology, because gynecology was what they did in those days. Obstetrics was in the hands of general practitioners and midwives. So not only does he make a number of claims about what episiotomy will do to help the mother and the baby, but he says the following, and I'm paraphrasing. (coughs) He says that if you take this over, you will gain control over the territory. And since midwives and GPs don't do surgical interventions, they will be sidelined. And you will move from being the discipline of gynecology to a discipline called obstetrics and gynecology. And believe it or not, Williams dies and Joseph B. DeLee, who who was when making all these statements, the president of the Gynecological Association becomes the next editor of Williams Obstetrics and Gynecology. And the episiotomy chapter is now in the book and remains unchanged from 1920-21 until 1986, when my study is published. Wow. Wow. Okay, so power. And basically, sidelining, that's what I'm hearing, essentially sidelining the other care providers and making the person with the surgical skills number numero uno. 
<laughs> That's right. And in fact, this is not only the demise of, of uh, natural childbirth, but it's the demise of midwifery itself. That, that as a result of this, see, pushing a PCR becomes the vehicle through which midwifery is destroyed. And it doesn't reemerge as a recognized discipline in North America until the uh, 1980s. So there's a huge, I mean, his, his influence is incredibly powerful and catastrophic for the discipline, also for general practice. And at, from that point forward, uh, obstetrics and gynecology own the, the uh, they basically own birth. And uh, we've been fighting that battle ever since. And it's all about power? Well, I think it certainly was all about power, but it was uh, it was about uh, moving from a natural process to a controlled process. Because once you did the episiotomy, you had to be able to sew up the episiotomy. And, you know, it's the first significant intervention in obstetrics other than forceps, which was invented by uh, a British obstetrician named Sims. We use this Sims forceps to this day for most of the forceps deliveries. So uh, it, it is the start of, uh, of the process that we are deeply into this, to this day. I also, of course, my wife Bonnie and I had children in Montreal at the Royal Victoria Hospital. Our two children were born there, which is a place you'll know. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, our first birth with uh, with our son Seth was uh, was uh, an unpleasant experience, highly controlled, and and yet I was. Uh, the chief resident in neonatology at the time, and you know, I, I wasn't even allowed to be at the delivery. Wow. And, and in those days, partners were not there. In those days, you couldn't take pictures. And all of that affected me very deeply. By the time Naomi, Naomi our daughter, was, was born two years later, we had made significant changes. Husbands were allowed. Uh, uh, you still couldn't take pictures. Uh, but uh, all of that has changed. And that was the beginning of a revolution that we know in Canada as uh, family-centered maternity care. Mm -hmm. And there were, uh, it was a woman's movement <clears throat> and it was uh, highly su uh, successful <coughs> in getting uh, partners into the delivery room, eliminating routine episiotomy, eliminating shaving enemas and all kinds of unnecessary and non-evidence-based uh, uh, interferences with childbirth. But be very clear, I mean, there, there are reasons for intervention, and, uh, but the key issue here is routine. So after the study was accepted <coughs> uh, and became part of William's te textbook of obstetrics, the episiotomy rate in Canada went from almost 70% down to 12%, which is what it is now. And the rectal trauma rate uh, prior to my study was 4.5%, which is very significant. In some places, it's much higher. And it went nationally down to 1.5%. So by avoiding episiotomy, uh, you have prevented a huge amount of maternal trauma. And it, you know, it's uh, 
obviously the most significant thing I've ever done. And I had no idea that, uh, that it would go as far as it's gone, but uh, it has gone, except, and this is important to, uh, to say, that the landscape has changed. For example, if you're going to have a preemptive cesarean section without interventions, without uh, indications at all, who, who cares about a episiotomy? Mm-hmm. And what's very interesting is that the very language and justifications that was that were that was used in the 1920s to promote routine episiotomy is now being used to promote routine cesarean section without indications for mother or baby. The language is the same. The justifications are the same. Uh, and the literature is exploding with, uh, with cesarean section as a way of preventing urinary incontinence, sexual dysfunction, blah, blah, blah. All of that was not even studied until the mid-90s. And now it's, it's constantly being studied with pelvic floor studies, with more or less adequate research designs. And all of this is linked to another movement, which is called the movement for evidence-based medicine. And so if, if you ask today's obstetricians about the routine use of episiotomy, they know that episiotomy causes the very trauma that it's supposed to prevent. But they're focused now on cesarean section as a way of preventing those very same things with inadequate evidence. And there are many, many flawed studies to justify this position. And uh, a friend of mine coined a phrase around these these studies, you know, the gold standard was the randomized controlled trial, which is what I use with with more than a thousand women. But he and my my friend Phil Hall uh, said, we have moved from evidence-based decision-making to decision-based evidence-making, <laughs> which means that the movement toward being against normal or natural childbirth is, uh, is a movement that has behind it the idea that you can actually design studies to give you the results that you want, as opposed to designing studies, even randomized controlled trials, that, uh, that are balanced, even, and fair, uh, that then can be used in, in the care of the very women in your practice, that, 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 that the studies fit with, uh, with uh, the environment in which you practice. So, for example, uh, all of the interventions that uh, are being promoted today, uh, the regular use of induction, the use of oxytocin, the, the, the normative use of epidurals, uh, they've been studied, but the, the, uh, the design of the studies are extremely problematic. And, uh, and people believe what they want to believe, and they pick and choose among the studies to promote their particular point of view. I have a question. We could go on about this at length, except to say that in Canada, the, uh, the obstetrician who really was most behind evidence-based practice, recently deceased in the early 90s, Mary Enkin, 
who uh, was uh, an obstetrician uh, in, at McMaster, um, changed in the latter part of his life because he was a promoter of randomized controlled trials in obstetrics, and he came to realize that uh, randomized controlled trials could be taken over by uh, quote unquote the dark forces, and that he uh, he came to realize that other ways of knowing beyond uh, formal randomized controlled trials having to do with satisfaction, the woman's experience, uh, her own particular value system, that those issues were just as important and, and should not be uh, uh, put aside at all in favor of randomized controlled trials, many of which had become subverted. So the question I have, when, and this is maybe, a, I think it's relevant, is the ARRIVE study, because so many people have said, and we've talked a little bit about it, but you know, we interviewed a labor and delivery nurse who was hesitant to come out and like, you know, say anything too overtly negative about it. But in, interestingly enough, it was done at her hospital in North Carolina. But basically, for people who aren't familiar, the ARRIVE study, the results showed that an elective induction at 39 weeks reduces the risk of a cesarean section. But then there's the whole Hawthorne effect. The people there knew, like they were, they knew they were being watched, you know, and they knew they could essentially manipulate the results to show that it indeed did reduce the cesarean rate. So anyhow, my question to you is, do you, what do you think about the ARRIVE study? Well, the ARRIVE study is a very important study. It is a randomized controlled trial. And it uh, makes the point that, uh, as you say, that uh, uh, an elective induction at 39 weeks, and they choose 39 weeks because everybody knows if you do it before 39 weeks, you're likely to get uh, a premature baby with respiratory problems. So they, they wisely choose 39 weeks. But the problem with the ARRIVE study and any randomized controlled trial in formal terms is what's called the difference between internal validity and external validity. Internal validity means that the results are correct within the conditions and setting in which the study takes place. Now, if the study takes place in an environment with a cesarean section rate of 10 or 12%, and you live in such an environment with the cesarean section of 10 and 12%, the study is likely true for you, but most people don't. They leave, live in an environment of a 25 to 30 and sometimes 40% cesarean section rate. Why is that? Well, because it's, it's an environment that is inventor, it is an inventor, invent, you know, in which, Invention, interventions of all kinds are the norm. And where women are basically treated, I like to say, as unexploded bombs that need to be defused. And if you live in that kind of environment, this study does not apply to you. And in fact, what will happen if you implement that is that some babies will be mistakenly born at 37, 38 weeks, and they will have breathing problems and NICU admissions and all kinds of other reasons. And you having your cesarean section in your next pregnancy are likely to get a whole range of other interventions that were not studied. Because we know 
that with each successive cesarean section, more and more complications arrive. You don't know how many babies you're going to have. And so the studies only have uh, relevance in this very narrowly defined uh, area that doesn't represent the way obstetrics is practiced. So, but, you know, if you live in the rarefied atmosphere of that study, which 90% of people don't, the study not only isn't true for you, but if you follow that, you're likely to get into deep trouble. Thank you for explaining that so well, because I have heard so many people say to me, well, I'm just going to get, I don't want a cesarean, so I'm going to choose to be induced at 39 weeks because of this evidence. And I'm sort of like, Mm, mm. How do I respond so in the, to this? In the, well, in that study, it marginally, and it's important to say marginally, statistically, so it's statistically relevant because there you have a large number of cases, but the the difference is small. And you, in your environment, which may uh, be completely different, uh, it may not apply. Another example, this study takes place in classical academic institutions like your institutions in Toronto. Uh, there are no, no midwifery uh, cases at all. So does it apply to birth taking place with midwives at home or in hospital? Absolutely not, because there are no midwives participating in that study. So this is another example. It does not have external validity for that. It doesn't have external validity for family practice. It doesn't have external validity for practices that use doulas extensively because they're not part of that study at all. Mm -hmm. So again, it's a, an interesting study, but it's, it's a kind of political study. Again, it's a study that uh, was designed to give you the results that you got. So I'd love to read an excerpt from your book. And we've talked about this before we started recording. It's a short little paragraph, and I think it'll inform the next um, kind of place we take this conversation. You write in the chapter, To Posh to Push, normal childbirth has become jeopardized by inexorably rising interventions around the world. In many countries and settings, cesarean surgery, labor induction, and epidural analgesia continue to rise beyond all precedent and without convincing evidence that these actions result in improved outcomes. One more thing. Use of electronic fetal monitoring is endemic, despite evidence of its ineffectiveness and negative consequences for most women who used it routinely. And so there's so much there. I could literally just read your book <laughs> for this podcast, but I think people just need to go and get it. But I, this is really something that is challenging, and I'm gonna be very honest, as you know, I am not a medical professional. I'm a Pilates instructor who's passionate about birth um, and, and passionate about helping women physically and mentally prepare, because I do truly believe you can train for the marathon of birth. You can reduce you know, trauma to your muscles and, and basically be as fit as possible to make your recovery smoother. And so that's where I come in. But part of that education piece is, is helping women feel confident and armed with knowledge to be better able to advocate for themselves. And that's a big, big, big part of what I do because so many people feel very uncomfortable voicing 
what they want. And I'm sure this is something that this is no, it comes as no surprise to you. Um, even Lexi here, she's pregnant with twins and people are like, oh, well, you have to have a C-section, even though she's had two prior, very uncomplicated vaginal deliveries with midwives. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're not going to talk about twins specifically because that's a whole other thing, but I, we're talking now about advocating for yourself. For example, you know, you get to the hospital, you're told you got to get the IV in, we're going to strap you to this monitor. You know, this is how things are done around here. You know, how do you navigate that? Well, obviously you need advocacy. You need advocacy, which means you have to choose the person who's looking after you very carefully. And you need to know that the person who's caring for you shares a value system with you whether that's an obstetrician or a midwife or a family doctor. Uh, on the episiotomy issue, uh, the way to find out is to simply ask, what's your episiotomy rate? And if he says to you, uh, or she says to you, don't worry, dear, I'll take care of everything. Don't, don't uh, worry your pretty little head about that. Get out of the office as quickly as you can and find somebody else. But you've got to ask the question. Otherwise, you won't be able to find the, you know, get the philosophy. You also have to ask about the setting. What, you know, what, what happens in the setting? How are people uh, monitored? What kind of flexibility is there? Do I have any choices here? If the answer is no, go to another place if you can. Now, not all women can. But let, let me just take one of the, a piece of what you said, because there's so much discussion. Let's just talk about continuous electron or fetal monitoring. Okay, there are a number of randomized controlled trials that unambiguously show that electronic fetal monitoring does not improve fetal health, and all it does is increase the cesarean section rate. But why is that? Well, you ask yourself, what is it that you really want to know? The answer is, I want to know how my baby's brain is doing while my baby is inside me. All right, that's a good thing to want to know. Okay, so we're going to strap something onto my mother, the mother's belly that measures the fetal heart rate. What? I mean, we want to know what's in the brain. Why are we measuring the fetal heart rate? Because it's as close as we can get. But, you know, it, it's an imperfect tool. It gives you false positives. It tells you that... Uh, that uh, the baby's in stress or undergoing some kind of stress, or you believe it is. And so you then rush in and you do your cesarean section and out comes a screaming baby and you say, boy, we got there just in time. Well, unfortunately, you can't say that because the the methodology is too blunt to give you the information that you need. And, and, we get it wrong so many times. We underdiagnose people that way. We overdiagnose people that way. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should abandon it. There are there are reasons to use electronic fetal monitoring, but it has to be specifically rather than routinely applied like any other intervention. And the problem is that hospitals tend to get into routines. They induce everybody at 41 and three-sevenths weeks because we all know that the placenta completely implodes at midnight um, at 37 weeks and two days. Everybody knows that. So you have to, you have to get the baby out before 
the placenta completely degenerates. Well, that's baloney, but but that's the way the 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 regulation is created. It's created for groups of people, which may or may not, may or may not include you, and it does not allow you and the person looking after you enough flexibility to tailor make what's happening for you and your needs as opposed to you know thousands of other people who you may or may not represent so why is it done so frequently what's even worse is because if you ask today's let's say canadian obstetricians about whether uh, routine electronic fetal monitoring improves the situation, vast majority of them will say no, because they know the literature. The literature is unambiguous. So the question is, so why do they continue to use it? I'll tell you why. Tell us. Because Please, yes. <laughs> it, it um, gives the provider the illusion of control. You can be sitting in your office, and in some places, there you can sit in your office with remote monitoring of what's going on in the delivery suite, and imagine that you know what's going on, and that the nurse who's your agent in the hospital is providing you through the monitor with uh, information so that you can stay home or in the office and, uh, and not worry that she's not cared for. So in fact, the monitor is, is caring for the mother, not you, not the nurse. And it's convenient and it's cost-effective for you, not for the woman or the hospital, but for you it is. And so on the way in, you say, well, you know, it's uh, scientifically not proven to be useful. In fact, it's even dangerous. On the other hand, I really do like it. So, you know, that's the kind of personal stuff that intersects with the yeah. science, which may be valid or may not be valid. In this case, the science is valid, but people don't pay any attention to the science because they happen to like it. You mentioned this in your book here. It's such funny. It's on the similar page that I was reading prior to this conversation. And you say, when I surveyed obstetrical residents about why they chose to train as specialists in OB-GYN, 82% indicated that it was the surgery that motivated them. When asked what they liked least, they replied, quote, being with women in labor. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the nurse's job. <laughs> right? Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, it's, they are surgeons. And if uh, the only tool that you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so uh, in this situation, uh, they're trained as surgeons and they're good surgeons. They want, we want them trained uh, well. Uh, the fact that most obstetricians these days, uh, the vast majority will be women, is irrelevant because uh, the, the training process produces the attitudes that make people believe that cesarean section is uh, is the ideal way of having a baby. And depending on the setting, uh, between 30, 40, and even up to 50% of women obstetricians are choosing preemptive cesarean sections for themselves. In other words, to never experience vaginal birth. Well, you can imagine what they're telling their patients if that's what they believe for themselves. They are afraid, and my national study shows this very clearly with more than 800 obstetricians across Canada, 
that uh, fear of pelvic floor dysfunction, fear of rectal and urinary incontinence, sexual dysfunction, which is uh, a flawed interpretation of the literature, is governing their actions. So how did they come to that belief? Well, you spend six weeks in, in a urogynecology clinic seeing women with urinary incontinence who are having trouble, trouble controlling their, their urine. Well, now you think that every, that, you know, vaginal childbirth is nothing more than an opportunity to pee your pants. Well, you know, it happens to be a bit more than that. Yeah. And, uh, you'd, you know, how much time did they spend with a midwife in home and hospital birth? None. Mm-hmm. And when do they meet a midwife or, or natural childbirth? When they're called in for a problem. They don't sit with the woman during labor and see all the positive births, which far outnumber the occasional difficulties that occur with or without a cesarean section. So the, you know, the educational process is flawed. Mm-hmm. The selection process for getting into the field is flawed, and you get the results that you'd expect. Yeah. And you know, if uh, if surgeons are given control over a natural process like uh, childbirth, why are we surprised if they favor uh, surgical uh, ways of approaching childbirth? It's no surprise at all. So where do we go from here? I mean, in your perfect world of unicorns and rainbows, <laughs> when, what's going to happen? You know, I've got Lexi and I both have daughters, you know, they're both four. Obviously, they're not having kids for a while now. But for their generation, what do you foresee happening or what would be a way to improve care, in your opinion? Well, let's go back in time a little bit. So the movement in Canada toward family-centered childbirth, which I talked about earlier, had its birth in the early 70s. And the women who, who were behind that revolution, it was a revolution, are now grandmothers. And they seemingly are not worried about what's happening to their daughters as much as they were way back when to what was happening to themselves. The family-centered maternity revolution, let's call it, was successful. And it was successful because women ran it uh, and they were the ones responsible for the rebirth of midwifery and all of the avoidance of the interventions. It wasn't the medical staff that suddenly decided that the interventions were, uh, were unnecessary. Where's, where's the equivalent movement today? Uh, you know, <laughs> today, on, the, on one of the front pages of Sports Illustrated, the swimsuit edition, you see a very attractive woman showing off in her bikini her cesarean section scar. This is considered to be a progressive breakthrough is it? When, when did we get that idea? How do we balance the fact that some women really need cesarean sections versus it's just another way of having a baby? We have people uh, glorifying cesarean section by having transparent drapes 
so that the women can see the baby emerge from their womb and bond with the baby uh, immediately. Well, that's a good thing. Uh, I'm in favor of that. But is that a reason to have a cesarean section? No, it's, it's something to do when you have to have a cesarean section. But what the media has done is to glorify cesarean section. And you, know, you don't have to worry about it. You can choose your date. We know that women are much more complicated than they were in the 70s. They're, they're employed. They are professionals. Many of them are obstetricians. You know, the landscape has changed. So if this is going to change, I don't think it's going to be changed because of the data, because the data we have learned has, has limitations. It has to be because women have decided that this is really, if you'll pardon the expression, birth control. Mm. But the birth that's being controlled is the woman's birth. How does she feel about that? Uh, who owns her body? Who owns her decisions? We need to look south to see what's really going on when we talk about birth control. And this push for seeing childbirth is just another way to have a baby and don't worry about it. You know, get, you know, choose your date and your time and your provider and everything will be fine. You know, if you believe that, you're giving up a great deal of control of your body, and you're probably going to give up control for other aspects of your life as well. And all we need to do is look south and read Margaret Atwood, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. So women have to retake the revolution that was so successful in the 70s and modernize it at the present time. And it has to be led by women and not professionals. I've got shivers. Hmm. Can you deliver my twins? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I will say a few things about your twins, okay? I won't Perfect. get into the details about your twins. The person who delivers your twins, if your twins are going to be delivered by cesarean section, needs to be a talented surgeon. If the person who delivers your twins is comfortable with and trained to be able to deliver twins vaginally, then that's the person to go to. If you go to somebody who believes that all twins should be delivered by cesarean section, guess what? You'll get a cesarean section. Mm -hmm. If you have a breech baby, do you want to be delivered vaginally by somebody who doesn't know how to do a breech birth vaginally? I don't think so. Well, can you find somebody who knows? With difficulty, because what's happened to the discipline of obstetric gynecology is that it's become de-skilled. You know, if the only tool you have, and you, and you do it very well, is this is Aaron section, and you are frightened because you haven't been trained to use forceps or to use vacuum or to use rotational maneuvers or to deliver vaginally twins or breech, if you haven't been trained for that, of course, you're going to go for the thing that you know how to do well and do safely. So whether it's a breach or whether it's twins, you have to find out who you're dealing with. They are not simple procedures, having a baby vaginally by, with twins or a breach. 
And there are very few people, and they're getting rather old, and they're retiring, and they aren't being replaced. So you, you need to know who you're dealing with. And mm -hmm. so it's not just your choice. It's whether you can get somebody who knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I, I had two, I had midwives for my first and second unmedicated vaginally. And the, and she's worked with, uh, my midwife has worked with this OB. And the first thing he said to me, which made me feel relief because Nikki knows I was really nervous going into my meeting because of all of these things and making sure that I had someone that was going to be aligned with my values and and how I wanted the twins to be delivered. And um, as long as everything's good, obviously their health comes first, right, Nikki? Yeah. <laughs> but but um, the first thing he said was, uh, so I see you've had two beautiful vaginal births. Our goal is a vaginal birth with the twins. And, you know, he, I'm going to talk you through all of the other things so that you're aware, but this is our goal here. And I felt good about that being that he was, you know, aligned in that manner, but it does gives, it gives me anxiety because, um, with twins automatically you're in this high risk and, um, and that's, you know, grounds for, uh, needing to almost like over advocate is what I feel like, because now it's all automatically you're in a different ballpark. You're, you're, well, you're let, in high risk. Okay. The term high risk is, uh, is, a, is a problematic term in itself. So high, high risk is determined by groups of patients who've had twins. Do those women look like you? Are they similar in age? Do the Scottish studies include people with your kind of birth history? But much more importantly, your obstetrician, who must be a wonderful person, is not on duty 100% of the time. That's my biggest worry. This is what I said to Nikki. Is I'm like, do I now need to interview all 13 others that are well, potentially well, going to be there? Well, you better get that straightened out because <laughs> unless, unless yes your obstetrician okay. is part of a group that has the same skill set as your obstetrician and the same attitudes, you might be better off with this as their inception. Okay. <sighs> So you have to address that issue. It's, yes. We can't just say it's possible to deliver twins vaginally. Of course it is. If you know what you're doing and right. if your partners know what they're doing and if they share a common philosophy about, about you and the birth and the environment and their attitudes and there is generally all over the map. Now, the good news is that people who have the attitudes that your obstetrician has tend to be in groups with like attitudes, but not always. You could have a group of six or 12 and three of them might be terrific and the rest of them, you know, say, well, I, I know what you were promised, but this is what I think about the situation. And what can you say in that situation? Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing for breach. Like in the hospital in Montreal at the time, you know, we had about 12 or 13 obstetricians on set, but only one of them really knew how to deliver breech babies vaginally. And he would honestly say to the mother, if I'm on duty, we'll go for a vaginal breech birth. But I cannot in conscience speak for the others. And, and I know all the others. He's right. So if one of the others is on duty, if I were you, I would go ahead and have a cesarean section. So you can see how, how you know, it's... Uh, 
it's complicated and you know how come we're not teaching like why aren't so this i don't know if this is an obvious question or obvious answer but why are we not maintaining these skills why is it is it because Mm -hmm. it's is it a litigious medical society where you're like you know what it's easier faster you know we get to bill more i don't know maybe in the u.s perhaps with cesarean than doing these more i don't know if it's considered to be riskier to deliver breech babies because i get a lot of students who are know their breech and and i want them to feel empowered and they they say you know what i am feeling more comfortable and that's of course they're right to know like rather than trying to find you know especially if it's the first with lexi she's already had two vaginal deliveries she doesn't now want to have a cesarean on top of that but for a first-time mother if they're breech, you know, and they, they, they can't find a practitioner that a lot of them are feeling empowered to make that choice. But I guess my question, cause I'm just a bit of a long-winded question, my apologies, but really how come we're not training more medical doctors to do these skills that I'm sure you saw that were very prominent in Ethiopia. And, you know, I, I'm reading your book in the Mayan cultures that, you know, you've traveled and done a lot of obstetrics in a lot of different places. Well, it's a it's a really difficult thing question to answer because the the discipline of obstetrics and gynecology is a surgical discipline. What we're trying to do is to add a level of complexity uh, to that discipline around which it's not really designed. Moreover, what electronic fetal monitoring, for example, does is provide a continuous record that can be used by lawyers in in cases where you have a bad outcome. You don't know whether the bad outcome was there before the labor began, which it is, which is the case most of the time, but we don't know how to measure it. But we do know how to do this procedure called cesarean section. We do not want to provide the lawyers with with, uh, hours of uh, electronic fetal monitoring tracing that they can use in court. Obstetricians are perfectly aware that, (laughs) on the one hand, it allows convenience, as I've explained, for the obstetrician. On the other hand, it actually exposes the obstetrician to risks that wouldn't be there otherwise. On the other hand, it protects the obstetrician, so they believe, for you know, being exposed to other risks. Now, the teaching or reteaching or recapturing a skill that was present in all obstetricians before cesarean section was, was so common uh, is very difficult because the motivation to use forceps deliveries, rotational deliveries with forceps and all of that, it's difficult to teach. Not everybody is is designed to do that. And not everybody has the manual skills to do that. It requires a kind of spatial relationships that may not be present in everybody, but learning how to do a cesarean section, it can be taught. And it can be taught to everybody, and it can be taught to everybody safely. Well, all the other things that we're talking about can be uh, learned and taught if there's motivation, but probably not to everybody. And so 
people are not all the same. And, and people have hugely different results. There's some people who have many more complications than others. Uh, and the motivation to train people for the more complex skills when they know they can train people for the simpler skill, which is cesarean section, it is very simple. In, in some settings, it's being done by medical technicians and not by obstetricians. You know, train, trained, uh, trained uh, cesarean section technicians. It's, it's a sad situation because uh, why would you want to join a discipline where the only tool that you have is cesarean section for dealing with almost every complication that exists and also you believe to prevent all kinds of other complications which you rightly or wrongly believe. Well, you're, you're inclined to believe in this surgical procedure because you're a surgeon and to expect you to learn all the much more complex skills that uh, people who who are committed to avoid unnecessary uh, procedures like midwives, you know, people who have those skills and those attitudes don't tend to go into obstetrics. Right. Now, how do we change that? We need to change it at the curricular level. It has to begin in medical school. And it's not just about obstetrics and gynecology. It's about learning to read the literature, learning how to diagnose and, and uh, understand both the benefits and limits of various methodologies like the randomized controlled trial. That's a big educational hurdle to get under. So why would they do it? There's only one reason, because women demand it. And if women don't demand it, it ain't going to happen because there's <laughs> There is no motivation whatsoever for people to learn those extra skills because they're more difficult to learn. They, they can't be learned by everybody. And the training process is more difficult, more complicated, more time consuming. And they have lots of other things they have to learn. So the motivation, the pressure has to come from the population. So I'll ask you, I mean, why, what, what do you think women are ready to do, is there a movement to do this? Is there motivation to do this? Has the landscape so changed since the 70s that it's perfectly okay to uh, have a child by cesarean section if you want one? What's the problem? I think it's become more divergent. I think there is more of the, oh, you're super crunchy or, oh, you're really empowered to go and like be, you know, book your cesarean and whatever it may be. So it's almost like it's it's the midwives route or it's the OB route. And I I had an OB with my first um, child. I had some heart SVT issues and I was here in Sunnybrook and, you know, they're like, you need to, you know, you're relatively high risk. You had been through fertility treatments you know, I told the midwives about like some of my SVT issues, hot, rapid heart rate. I had not yet had a cardiac ablation. They're like, you got to go. We're not going to take you. Fair. So I had a really good experience with an OB, but there was a time I remember pushing and I was on, you know, unmedicated and it, she's a urogynecologist, a very well-known bladder surgeon here in Toronto, happened to be on call catching my baby. And uh, 
Dr. Rose Kung, shout out to you. And so I remember being on all fours, I'd been in the tub and everything. And they're like, oh, doctor's here. It's time to come onto your back. And I was like, I can't, like, it's too, too painful. I can't. And they're like, you have to. And I remember like crying and like, no. And they're like, you have to. And I compromised lying kind of on my side because I couldn't be on my sacrum. It was just excruciating. And then, you know, she's kind of like, what's this woman doing? Like kind of turning her head, trying to like see or whatever. But in the hallway after I had a doula, she said, my doula told me later, she said, thank you for allowing me to witness a physiologic birth is what she said to my doula in the hallway at Sunnybrook. And then story goes, and I remember feeling like everything was great, but I just hated being told I had to be on my back in that last moment. It pissed me off, frankly. And so with my second, I was like, I'm going with midwives. <laughs> so that's kind of, and then of course the, she was like, I'll catch your baby standing up. You know, you can be doing a handstand. <laughs> anyway. I'll catch your baby however you want. I was kneeling on my hands and knees as had felt instinctual for me. And, you know, it was a three hour precipitous labor in, out, home, whatever. It was a great experience, but that is what has fueled this fire in me to really help women because it's so hard to find your voice in the moment. Sure. Right. And, and I, and it felt so wrong to go onto my back and I had secondary tearing and I'm pretty sure it probably could have been avoided um, had I had a different, but, but Rose, Dr. Kung was there. She wanted to support me, but I could tell she was kind of like, this is like, I'm not used to seeing this. Like what's this woman's making a lot of noise and she's kind of crooked on the table. Like what's going on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess, I mean, I honestly, Dr. Klein, I could talk to you all day um, yeah. about all this stuff, <laughs> but how do you, you know, that's like, like another thing, right? Like this whole idea of like one of the conversations I had with our students is, you know, we know non-recumbent, you know, positions versus recumbent positions. We know the evidence around opening the pelvic outlet. Why are we still telling women they need to be in lithotomy? You know, it doesn't, you know, why? And this is a similar question. Like, why are we still seeing so many episiotomies being done? You know, I was reading an article in USA Today, and I sent it to Lexi before this conversation last night. In some of the hospitals in the US, it's like still 30%, even New York, 35%. Like, why? Why? Mm -hmm. So many questions. Why? Because that's what they've been taught. You know, it's, it's all back to the educational process again. And, uh, you know, I, I, you spontaneously <clears throat> adopted the, the, what we call the Sims position or the sideline position, uh, which is an excellent position to have a baby. But if you only delivered people in, in, with their legs up in stirrups or even their legs up without stirrups, you're going to feel uncomfortable with births in the sideline position. If you've never attended a birth squatting, uh, then you're not going to know how to deliver baby squatting. It's going to make you uncomfortable. And this is midwifery territory. So in in British Columbia, I'm pleased to say that more than 20% of the births in the province are midwifery births. In hospital or at home, we did a randomized control, not a randomized control, we actually studied every single birth in British Columbia for five years by, by midwives in hospital or at home, same midwives in the hospital versus the same midwives at home. And what you see is that the same midwives in the hospital use more interventions than they do at home. Uh, they, uh, 
they have higher cesarean section rates in the hospital than they themselves have at home. So it tells you something about the environment. But more and more midwives are being trained. Midwives and family doctors and obstetricians have excellent relationships in British Columbia. They're very mutually supportive. They are respectful of each other. They talk to each other. The medical students are uh, exposed to maternity nursing, midwifery, doulas, the whole business as a normal part of childbirth. And so some real progress has been made. And why has that happened? Same old story. The women have demanded it. And uh, the University of British Columbia has expanded, doubled and tripled its program to accommodate that. But we still can't meet all the demand because there are still not enough midwives to uh, to meet all the demand. You know, the joke here is that uh, you, you book your midwife uh, at conception or ideally before conception <laughs> and uh, because the list is so long. There's no doubt that midwifery care uh, for people who want uh, control over their own bodies is the way to go. Uh, now, can you do that in a rural setting where there are no midwives? No. Those women have tough decisions to make. And we need to train more midwives. As the culture changes, then, then, uh, then this will happen. But... You know, to kind of summarize, we, we have, we're at a moment now where there are two competing paradigms. One paradigm says that childbirth is not, nothing more than an opportunity for accidents to happen. The other paradigm says that childbirth is a human transformative experience that, by the way, you should be reasonably vigilant about. You don't ignore the possibilities that something can go wrong, but you're, you favor trying to normalize versus you favor, favor getting that baby out as quickly as possible. But as we all know, the uterus is an unreliable organ, right? So you've got to think about the underpinnings of the belief systems and the skill sets of everybody in the mix. And that's the most important thing in your decision-making process. The randomized controlled trial that I've done, I'm happy about it, but it's not the be-all and the end-all. You know, changing the culture is what really needs to happen, and that's not going to happen if, if doctors are running the show. Of course, we like to run the show that we're responsible for, but we won't go anywhere without pressure from the public. So. You've written this incredible book that I am, I'm almost finished, but I'm really excited to finish because it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. You weave in so many amazing, you know, anecdotes about your life and your journey. And, you know, and you mentioned you're, I think you said you were 84 years old, you know, you're a beacon of light in the medical community. And I want to know what's next for you. Well, I'd like to know that myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether I have another book in me. I'm writing some stories. Uh, I'm supporting midwives. I have run something called the Maternity Care Discussion Group, uh, which is which I founded 36 years ago. And it's the only uh, entity like it worldwide. It's, it's a discussion group 
between obstetricians, family doctors, midwives, doulas, a few maternity researchers. There are almost 1,800 people on the list. Uh, it's a respectful list. We look, the, we, we look at the literature. I post good literature. I post bad literature. So people can know what's out there. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's, uh, then we share that. We ask each other questions. The obstetricians on the list are extremely generous. They ask answer questions from midwives and uh, and doulas and uh, family doctors. And uh, I continue to do that. And and the discussions that are on the list uh, are the uh, the uh, material that I can use for writing and for supporting. Uh, midwives and uh, family doctors and medical students because the questions emanate logically from the list itself. Uh, it's a very respectful list. And uh, I had finally gotten a co-list master after all these years. So if I kick off, there'll be somebody to take over from me. But, uh, but uh, I spent a, a significant amount of time on that list because uh, it's such a unique list that, uh, and a resource. The midwives say they like it in many respects better than the midwifery list because they get an opportunity to chat across the whole uh, group of disciplines. And, uh, and so that's one of the things that I'm doing. And of course, I'm, uh, we have grandchildren and uh, all that takes, uh, takes time and we love it. So There's a I'm, not sure, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do next. <laughs> Well, I'll be waiting with bated breath to see. But also, there's a photo I remember seeing of you somewhere on the internet where you said real men love midwives and you're wearing a t-shirt that says oh, real yes. men love love midwives. And I just, I guess my, I was like, I got I to gotta stop this interview at some point. I could literally keep you on here for hours. But I mean, what what drives you? Let me end it here. What drives you? Why are you such an, uh, an advocate and, and supporter of midwives when many of your colleagues do not feel the same way that you do. So what, what drives your passion? Well, I think it has something to do with the fact that I started at the newborn side of the equation. And my, uh, my mentors uh, were people who cared about these other issues. One of my early mentors and friends was Marshall Klaus, for example, who is responsible for what we maternal infant bonding and wrote the first st stories about that, helped to found the, uh, the first doula organization. And uh, I've been on the editorial board of birth for uh, about 30 years. And uh, I just, I find the, uh, the literature around birth to be a window through which you can see an entire system. If you understand how society thinks about women and how it treats women, you, you can have a, a vehicle for analyzing so much more, including the unfortunate uh, situation in the United States recently, uh, and how beliefs about, about the issue you know, around abortion and what's going to happen at the Supreme Court tell you much more about society in general than, than you might imagine. It's, it, it is a, not only a window, it's a, uh, a warning 
that that how society treats the most vulnerable at at the most vulnerable times in their lives tell you so much about the society and what needs to take place. I mean, it's so ironic that that in Mississippi, where, where, uh, and Alabama, where people are gonna be forcing poor black women to carry their pregnancies when they already have other children, when the maternal mortality rate in, in Alabama is 20 per 100,000, while in British Columbia and most of Canada, it's about three per 100,000. Wow. So, you know, we're talking about uh, dismissing the concerns of women, but we know a great deal about the society just through that window. And if we uh, don't pay attention to it around childbirth, then we're not going to pay attention to it around anything. So I I'm I continue with this because uh, I I find it both so disheartening on the one hand, at the same time uh, subject to change. If if the society wants the change and can understand what's behind the change, so. I, you know, it's it's a political as well as a medical decision. Uh, you know, in college, I majored in political science, not pre-med. Uh, so maybe that helps. Who knows? Uh, you know, I, you know I, I am this way. I mean, I came to Canada when I was an officer in the U.S. military during the Vietnam War, and I refused to have anything to do with it. So we escaped to Canada, and, you know, that's who I am. What can I tell you? And that has served you so well. And I know that it will continue to serve you so well and inspire people like me who are just going to basically make this mandatory listening for all my students. (laughs) So thank you. uh, It's been lovely talking with you. You too. And 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 we can do do more of this whenever you're ready. Oh, uh, okay. Well, that's it. I will take you up on that. Absolutely. And we'll do a sequel because there's just too much to cover. (laughs) Well, why don't you see what the feedback is and then we'll see what women want and then we can decide to design something different based on what they want. Okay. Let's do it. hundred percent. Thank you. And that's a great idea. Okay. Take care. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.